Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory. We've got a ton to talk about this week. As usual, a ton is happening in baseball. As we get to approximately one-fourth of the way through the season, we're going to hit on a variety of topics, as we always do. And I'm going to start today with the series that I attended this weekend in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium, Padres at Dodgers. You might have seen the outcome. A sweep for the Dodgers, the 11th straight regular season victory in a series by the Dodgers over the Padres. Now, if you're a Padres fan, you're saying, okay, but yes, look at last year's division series. That was the Padres' monumental moment in franchise history for San Diego winning that series. But still, as I write today in The Athletic, there is separation between these teams. And it's not really a separation in talent, because you can argue that the Padres have more talent than the Dodgers. It's more a separation in identity, in who these teams are. And what I mean by that goes to the construction of each of these clubs. Look at the number of homegrown players on each team. Ten for the Dodgers presently. Three for the Padres, and it only got to three when they recalled Ryan Weathers yesterday to start that game. The other two homegrown players on the Padres right now are the relievers, Stephen Wilson and Tom Cosgrove. That's not a lot of homegrown impact. Why? Because the Padres trade a lot of their prospects for some of their star players. They have star players. There's no question about it. But their roster is top-heavy. It's kind of slapped together. You've got guys out of position now. Cronenworth at first base. Tatis in right field, it's a hodgepodge. It's a funky mix. And it seems to me that there is no there there, in a sense, with the Padres. There is no Padres way. These players come from other teams. They know what their other teams did and how they went about their business there. But with the Padres, it's just kind of all coming together as one. And sometimes it takes a while for such a team to come together. Sometimes such a team doesn't really come together at all. Now, there's plenty of time left in the season. I know that. It might get to the point where the Padres simply out-talent the Dodgers. But right now, the separation is seven games. And the Dodgers have, without question, a winning culture. Ten straight postseason appearances. I know they've won only one World Series, but they always get there. And they get there because they've done things a certain way for a long time. They incorporate young players into their mix on a regular basis. This is supposedly a transition year for them. They're bringing in a number of young guys. We're seeing Outman and Miguel Vargas, of course, two of them. Some younger pitchers as well, and we'll see more as the season goes on. They have a number of other prospects, a whole rotation full of them at AA, and it's one wave after another. Some get traded, yes. Some players do come from other teams. Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman. But by and large, this is a team that has an identity, has a certain chemistry about them. Those 10 homegrown players don't include three who have been part of multiple World Series teams. Muncie and Chris Taylor, those kinds of guys. So there's something there. And that identity, that chemistry that they form, it plays out. It might not win you a World Series on a regular basis. It might not even win you a division series last season against an upstart Padres team. But it's something that really matters. And when you look at the Dodgers roster, yeah, there are questions. Infield defense, not very good. Was Kershaw going to throw 200 innings, which is his current pace? I don't think so. And there are other things that you can look at and say, not so sure about. Padres, though, have arguably just as many questions with the third highest payroll in the game. 
Their rotation beyond Darvish and Musgrove, neither of whom is an ace, is questionable. Their bullpen is missing Robert Suarez and has been missing forever Drew Pomerantz. The bottom of the lineup is not very good. Cronenworth at first base doesn't give you the same kind of production with that offensive profile that you normally would want from that position. So there are all these things going on. Padres have lost seven of eight. They're now seven games back of the Dodgers. And you just wonder how it's all going to come together. Now, finally, on this point, I know Padres fans are probably thinking, no problem. A.J. Preller will make a couple of trades. We'll be right back in it. Problem is, the farm system is not as deep as it once was. And with that, you're restricted in what you can do. Now, they'll probably trade their top prospect, Jackson Merrill, for Corbin Burns or whoever. But again, you're talking about just slapping pieces together and hoping everything fits well. It doesn't always work like that. There is something to roster construction. And for all of A.J. Preller's talents in identifying and acquiring talent, he hasn't yet mastered that roster construction. So that's one thing. That's the NL West. Now let's go back east, all the way east, to the AL East, the best division in baseball. And I want to talk about a team that probably is the least discussed in America of the five AL East clubs, and that's the Toronto Blue Jays. Blue Jays went this weekend and swept the Atlanta Braves at home. Now, granted, they didn't face Max Fried, who's on the IL. They didn't face Kyle Wright, who is on the IL. But on Friday night, they beat Spencer Strider. Spencer Strider on a night when he struck out 12 Blue Jays, but was outdone by Chris Bassett, who threw a two-hit shutout. Next game, Jose Barrios, resurgent of late. He beats Bryce Elder, and then the third game, Kikuchi doesn't pitch well for the Blue Jays, but they pull it out anyway. I love this team. I love their lineup, the balance that they now have with Varsho and Kiermaier, who is having a big offensive season. I love, of course, the stars, Guerrero, Bichette, Chapman having an MVP-type year. And their rotation, at times, can be as good as any. Now, Manoa has not been great so far, but Bassett has come on. Barrios has been better. Kikuchi has been better except for that one start the other day. And it just seems to me that while they're currently, what, six out, with Tampa Bay playing as well as they are, the Jays have a chance to do something special this season. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but the talent on that roster, it makes you wonder just how far they can go. They've now won six of seven. Remember, they had that horrible sweep in Boston when they were swept by a team they dominated last year. This run started right after that. So... It's a team to watch. It's a team in a division that is absolutely stacked. The Orioles, we will talk about them a little bit later. The Rays, what else is there to say? Great split with the Yankees this weekend. Hard-fought games. The Yankees played great. Huge wins by New York on Friday and Saturday night. But the Rays come back on Sunday, barely held on. You saw the Jason Adam expression when Judge nearly hit the home run two outs in the ninth inning. But they did hold on, and they remain the team to beat in this division. And even the Red Sox, of course, have proven quite competitive. But watch out for the Jays. I still like what they're doing. I love their talent. I love their roster. Yes, you can always point to different things with every team, and that will be the case with Toronto as well. But if they can get Springer going and they can get Manoa going, I know pieces don't always click at the same time together. They're going to be quite formidable, and they are a team to watch in the AL East. Time now for the inside dish in which I go deeper on a story developing in Major League Baseball or perhaps a story I've written. This week I want to talk about two different things. 
One arguably is the biggest story in baseball right now. The other might have flown under the radar, but we'll get to that and we'll explain it as we go on. The first story, the one that I say is arguably the biggest in baseball, that's the Wilson Contreras saga, which resumes Monday night with Wilson Contreras back behind the plate. A very short exile, as it turns out, from the catching position. And this has been one of these stories that has been surprising at every turn. Now, it seems that Wilson is back behind the plate tonight, Monday night, because he wants to be. He told the Cardinals it's time. And because Jack Flaherty, who is pitching tonight and who has struggled, wants Contreras to catch him. But let's go back to, what was it, May 6th? Not that long ago. 35 games into the season. That's when the Cardinals began this saga by announcing that Wilson Contreras is not going to catch for some undetermined amount of time. At that point, I spoke with the Cardinals president of baseball operations, John Mosellock, and here's what he said. This is going to take a little time to get to where he feels, where we feel he understands the expectations of what this role is for us. Take a little time, is what he said. Some of the things we expect, some of the things about the game we've become accustomed to, I think he realized it's going to require more preparation. Now the question is, can that happen? I guess we'll have to find out. Reporters asked Wilson Contreras yesterday, has he changed anything in his preparation? He basically said no. So what the heck is going on here? I want to go back to the winter meetings, back when the Cardinals signed Wilson Contreras to a five-year, $87.5 million free agent contract. At that time in San Diego at the winter meetings, I saw someone with the Cardinals and I basically said, what are you guys doing? You had the all-time greatest defensive catcher, Yadier Molina, and you're signing a guy who the Cubs basically turned away from because they did not like his game calling and game preparation. And the Cardinals basically said, then and now, we had this great three and a half hour meeting with Contreras. He said all the right things. We think we can figure this out, no problem. 35 games into the season, there was a problem. Now there's no problem again. Now, Wilson Contreras is a very good player, a very good offensive player for sure. And actually, the passion he brings, the savvy he brings, you saw what he did to Kenley Jansen the other night. He completely got inside his head with this pitch clock stuff, messing around in the box. Brilliant. He does not have the best reputation as a defensive catcher. The Cardinals should have known this. They had to know this. And one other thing on this, the Cardinals had a chance this offseason to trade for Sean Murphy, like every other team. Sean Murphy was out there. The A's were going to move him. There was not much doubt about that. The A's asked a lot, for a lot. They asked for Lars Nootbaar, Brendan Donovan, a pitching prospect named Gordon Graceffo, at least two of those three guys, maybe all three. Depends on who you believe. St. Louis post dispatch heard it one way. I heard it another. Those were the names. Cardinals didn't want to do it. Too much to give. You can't trade these guys. They've got a zillion outfielders, but they didn't trade any. They didn't trade any for Sean Murphy, and they didn't trade any for Pablo Lopez, a guy that they could have used. And here they are with a free agent catcher that they have for five years at big money when they could have had, if they had given up the talent, admittedly good talent, a guy that would have fit them really well because he's a great defender, and would have been kind of along the lines of what they've done before. Go back to Mark McGuire, Matt Holliday, Noan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt. Four players the Cardinals traded for and then signed long-term. 
Sean Murphy signed almost immediately long-term with the Braves. I think he probably would have signed long-term with the Cardinals. So the whole thing has been curious and curiouser, and it continues Monday night, and we'll see what happens with this. All I know is Jack Flaherty needs to pitch well. Wilson Contreras needs to get it going behind the plate. I believe he is committed to doing that. I know he wants to do that. But listen, no player is perfect. And this seemingly is his weakness. Now, the other story I want to get into, a lot of people I'm sure miss this, but not everyone, and certainly not fans in Arizona. Friday night, Diamondbacks versus Giants, tie game in the fifth inning. Christian Walker is at the plate. Alfonso Marquez is the umpire. Christian Walker takes a called strike two that he didn't like. Then he gets called out on an appealed check swing on strike three by the first base umpire, Ramon DeJesus. Christian Walker walks back to the dugout, shaking his head, gesturing repeatedly, saying a few choice words as he turns back toward the field, toward Marquez, toward DeJesus. Marquez doesn't throw him out. He probably could have if he was really being petulant that day, but he didn't throw him out. Usually an umpire exercises good judgment in letting a player have his say to a certain degree. Remember, you're not supposed to argue balls and strikes. That's a rule in Major League Baseball. So, an inning later, Diamondbacks are up again. Nick Ahmed at the plate. Ramon de Jesus at first base rules on a check swing in Ahmed's favor. And you can see Christian Walker clapping from the dugout, from the top step of the dugout. Now, he looks like he's doing that pretty innocently, but there might be some sarcastic intent there. And Christian Walker actually said later, yes, it was intentful what I was doing. Now you see, he's like, whoa, I'm just clapping. I'm not doing anything. This whole thing looked a little odd to me. So I checked in with Major League Baseball and I said, can you please give me an explanation for what happened? I want to know the other side of this, if there is another side. This looked like an ump show, right? A really bad ump show. A guy gets ejected for clapping? Well, when I asked Major League Baseball about this, they got back to me. They talked to the umpires, and the umpires responded that it wasn't simply the clapping, that after Walker struck out, in addition to gesturing and saying what he said, which wasn't much, and shaking his head, Walks down the steps of the dugout, slams his helmet. Next inning, as he goes out to the field for the top of the sixth, he's chirping again. And the second base umpire at that point told the Arizona dugout, hey, let's go. Cool it. Let's close this. Enough already. And then, and then when the Diamondbacks come back to the plate, even before Ahmed was hitting, this is, again, all according to the umpires, Walker was clapping and, in Marquez's view, showing up the umps. That's a big no-no in the umps' minds. That's the one thing that drives them crazy. Well, among other other things that might drive them crazy. By the time he clapped for the Nick Ahmed check swing that went in the Diamondbacks' favor, the umps had had enough. So the moral of the story here is that there are two sides to every story. I'm sure Christian Walker still feels aggrieved by this, and I'm sure in his mind he has a point. But the umpires often come to a point where they've had enough. And I criticize the umpires at times. I defend them at times. In this case, it just seems to me we have to look at the whole situation and what the umpires are saying too and take that into account. In the umpire's view, Christian Walker doth protest too much. All right, here we go with the dude and dork of the week. 
It always seems like there are more candidates for dude of the week, and this week is no different. But my dude of the week is a guy who hit the go-ahead homer in the eighth inning of three straight games. That is hard to do. And Josh Naylor did it for the Guardians, a team that has struggled mightily offensively. And he did it in his first game off a left-hander. And he has struggled mightily against left-handers off Matt Moore. So good for Josh Naylor. He is the dude of the week. Check this out from Sarah Langs just to contextualize his accomplishment. He is the first player in the expansion era since 1961 to hit a go-ahead home run in the eighth inning or later in three straight games. The Guardians need to get their offense going. This is a division that is quite odd right now. The Twins also struggling offensively, even though they put up 16 on Sunday. This division is there, and the Guardians have terrific young starting pitching. They have a chance to do some special things this season, but they need to get their offense untracked. Josh Naylor went a long way toward doing that this week. That is why he is dude of the week. Now, honorable mention dudes of the week, either one of these guys would have been a great choice as well. My first is Sandy Alcantara of the Marlins. Now, not for the way he's pitching. He's not pitching at that Cy Young level he achieved last year. But for his mentorship of the rookie who made his major league debut at age 20 on Friday night, Yuri Perez. You might have seen the videos that the Marlins put out of Perez's learning of his promotion. Learned of it from a video that Sandy Alcantara spoke to him on. They showed it to him. The manager of the AAA team, actually his AA team, did. And the manager and pitching coach were there. And there's Sandy on the video telling him, hey, welcome to the show. And then... Alcantara picked up Perez at the airport, and there's another video of him with Perez in the car. They're driving along, and Alcantara is essentially giving this kid a pep talk. Both from the Dominican Republic, this is the kind of thing that I love to see in baseball. It's what players do to help each other and how they pass the torch to the next generation. Not that Sandy Alcantara is about to fade away, but he's taking care of this kid. Again, under other circumstances... No Josh Naylor, maybe Sandy is due to the week. And then there's a third possibility that this guy, I don't even know how to describe what he is doing. You might not have heard of him if you're on the East Coast, because a lot of times East Coast fans don't pick up everything going out on the West Coast. But right-handed pitcher Bryce Miller for the Seattle Mariners has done something, well, almost as historic as Josh Naylor. Let me read this to you because it's a little involved, but... It's really cool. So in each of his first three major league starts, he has gone at least six innings while allowing one runner less, three hits or fewer, and one walk or fewer. So six innings, three hits or less, one runner fewer, one walk or fewer. That's Bryce Miller's major league debut. And if you think of the Mariners with Miller, Kirby, George Kirby, and Logan Gilbert, those are three starting pitchers, 26 and under, who... Each could be an ace, and they've got more coming as well. Some other pitching prospects that they are pretty high on. So good for the Mariners. Bryce Miller, other circumstances, you too might have been due to the week. Now my dork of the week. Well, let me explain this first by talking about a phrase that players often use. Now, if I was on foul territory, using the foul language that they often use on foul territory, Scott Braun style, I might say exactly what this phrase is, but you'll get the idea. The phrase is, 
often uttered by players, sometimes coaches and managers. Don't hear it as much lately, but I certainly heard it earlier in my career all the time. Who the blank is this guy to be doing this thing? Jake Bird, when he basically challenged the Phillies dugout, actually challenge might be too strong a word, but he gestured toward them, he mouthed off toward them, he smiled at them. All of that prompted, you can see he clapped at them, it prompted Bryce Harper to basically say, who the f is this guy? Jake Bird, 27 years old, 57 major league appearances. There goes Bryce. You just don't do this. And Jake admitted afterward that his emotions got the best of him. This really didn't erupt into anything, at least from a punching standpoint. There were no punches thrown. But Jake Bird should never have gone there. You just don't act like that, especially when you've walked the first two guys in the inning. You only got out of it with a double play and another final out. So Jake Bird... I know you didn't really read it. I know your emotions got the best of you, but you're going to be the Dork of the Week for that. Sorry, man. You had to get it. Also, honorable mention Dork of the Week. You might have missed this Saturday night. If you're in New York or Washington, you probably didn't miss it. The nearly four-hour delay before the Mets-Nationals game was suspended until the next day. Let me give you the timeline. Game starts at 4.05. Delay begins at 4.43 after 38 minutes. And there are no updates given at the Nationals ballpark until 8.38 when they announced that the game is suspended. That's almost four hours of nothing. Now, I could go on here and talk at length about my feelings, but I couldn't do it as well as the SNY broadcasters did. So let's show you exactly what they said after this decision finally came down because it was a bit outrageous, to say the least. And we just got this information that today's game has been suspended and will be part of a split doubleheader tomorrow, which oh. is, that is unprecedented to have the completion of a suspended game part of a split doubleheader. So after a galling nearly four hours of waiting, including the last half hour where absolutely nothing was happening in terms of trying to get the field ready, that all the work had been done, now they make the decision to play a split doubleheader tomorrow with the resumption of the first game at 12.35 and the second game starting at 4.35. And what I'm assuming is that for the last half hour, that was the communication between the Nationals and the Mets and Major League Baseball to get permission to do this, which as far as I'm concerned, has never been done before, that you're giving a piece of a game to the fans as part of a split doubleheader as opposed to playing straight through and making it a single admission. A, a piece of a game has now become a full game right. for the fans that uh, uh, chose choose to attend. I, I've, I've never heard of anything like this ever happening. And, and to wait four hours for these oh. folks, uh, you saw the boos, you saw unhappiness. You can't hear how loud and how unhappy they are yeah. here tonight. Absolutely. And for me, to take this long to come to a decision, it's just and make these people wait out here without any clue. I don't know. I'm just, that, that, that's uh, to me is unconscionable. It's really a shameful episode on the part of Major League Baseball to permit this to happen and then to come to this kind of a resolution to charge fans twice tomorrow rather than playing straight through with the completion of suspended game. All right, that is Gary Cohen, Ron Darling, and Keith Hernandez, three of the absolute best. And I can assure you, if this had happened at the Mets home park, City Field, they would have had the same reaction. That's not where they're coming from. They're not ripping the Nats. They're really ripping Major League Baseball. 
Now, I should add that fans who could not attend the resumption of this game the next day, the split doubleheader, they could exchange their tickets for a future game at Nationals Park. But the point the broadcasters made there is absolutely right. You cannot leave people in the dark for four hours and just have nothing said. It's just wrong. It's disrespectful of your fans, and it's something that baseball's got to get better at. This happens once in a while. Not often, but it happens once in a while, and it just makes you scratch your head and wonder what the heck are they thinking. Looking ahead this week, I've got Dodgers at Cardinals on Fox Saturday, and I am looking forward to this one. Looking forward to seeing the Cardinals circus up close and in person. This is a big week for the Cardinals. As we talked about earlier, Contreras resumes catching Monday night in a series against the Brewers, a big series, of course, in the division. And then the Dodgers, red-hot Dodgers, 16-5 and in their last 21, come to town in St. Louis. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how the Cardinals play this week. They've done a great job, 6-7, of seven, since they're absolute nadir, but they've got a long way to go. All right, now it's time for some fan questions. Let's get to them. First one comes from Jack, KC sports fan, JY. Do the Royals move or roll this Chapman before the deadline? Like now, do the Royals lock down Vinny, Singer, Bobby Witt Jr. long term? All right, first on Chapman. I wrote about this last week, and you guys know this, people who follow the game. Trades generally do not happen in May or even early June, not even often in late June. Teams just aren't ready to give up prospects, big-time prospects, and that's what other teams, the teams with players to trade, require at this time of year to give up that much control. The Royals are open to trading a role this Chapman right now. They're getting calls on a role this Chapman right now, but they have a certain price that they want met. And if it's not met, they'll just hold him. And in their mind, hopefully his value keeps building. It's odd because your value can only build so much when your club control is diminishing, but that's the strategy teams take when they can't get their price right now. They just wait. As for those long-term contracts, Vinny Pasquantino, maybe at some point. Brady Singer's got to pitch better. And Bobby Witt Jr., I have a hard time believing he's going to sign one when he sees what all these free agent shortstops are getting. Royals know this. It's going to be difficult to keep him. All right, next fan question. This comes from <laughs> seemingly depressed discount Dave Franco. Go, Grado, Nego. Okay, whatever. Are the Orioles for real? Oh, and he gives the answers to the question. Spoiler alert, yes. Fair question. A lot of fans are probably wondering, are the Orioles really this good? And I was wondering the same until last weekend when they played the Braves really tough. Won the first game in that series in Atlanta, 9-4, then lost two one-run games, the second in 12 innings. It was just impressive the way they stood up to the Braves and just played them almost evenly. And then they go back to Baltimore and win two of three from Tampa Bay. Now, that's six games against really good teams, and the Orioles fared very well. They're in a tough part of their schedule now. 22 straight games with a winning record. 22 straight games against teams with a winning record. They're five and four so far, coming off the two of three with the Pirates this weekend. And yes, they're for real. Now, the real question for me, and I've said this before, will they act like they're for real from a front office perspective when the deadline comes and it will be time to add? It's time to add. If they're still in it in July, yes, they need to go forward. Final question comes from Felipe, 
at Ocean Drive Z. Felipe asks, how bad is Rodon's injury? I've been seeing conflicting reports on when and if he'll even come back this season. Good news, Felipe. He's throwing again. Threw on Saturday and Sunday, 60 to 75 feet. These are baby steps. And remember, he first had the forearm issue and then the more troublesome issue that has arisen of late, the back problem. A problem that he described at one point as chronic. Now, it seems to me he misspoke. If it was chronic, he would not have passed his physical and gotten six years and $162 million from the Yankees. But certainly it's been a problem. He is still a long ways away, probably six weeks, but fully intending to pitch this season, and the Yankees are fully intending to have him pitch this season. He would be the equivalent at this point of a trade deadline pickup and a really good one. Now, we've been talking about some honorable mentions with Dude and Dork of the Week. Let's do one with the fan questions. I'll show you one more. This gets our honorable mention from the fan questions. This comes from that guy Garrett at GarryStud94, and he says, Oh my goodness, I made it on Ken's show. You sure did. And we appreciate you reaching out. We appreciate your reaction. That's exactly the reaction we're looking for. Hey, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for watching. And remember, you can subscribe to us on your YouTube channel, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Listening, viewing, whatever you want to do. I want to thank everyone again. We'll be back next week. Fair territory with Kim Rosenthal. Foul territory fans, listen up. Our friends at BetMGM are running an MLB Bet $10 Get $100 Instantly promo with the bonus code SPICYMLB. Here's how it works. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your newly created account. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android. Place a pre-game money line wager of at least $10 on any MLB team to win at standard odds price, and you will receive $100 in bonus bets instantly. If you sign up in Massachusetts or Ohio, you receive $200 in bonus bets. Use the bonus code SPICYMLB.